Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm speaking with Amanda Klukowski von Koppenfels, PhD, Reader in Migration and Politics, Director of the Master's Program in International Migration at the Brussels School of International Studies, University of Kent, and author of the book, Migrants or Expatriates, Americans in Europe, Migration, Diasporas, and Citizenship. Thanks for joining us today, Amanda. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be with you today. Could you tell us a little about your background? How did you end up where you are today? You know, it's really funny you asked that immediately after talking about my book. And the short answer is chapter five. In the book, I really, in the research that I did for the book, I came across this concept of what I ended up calling the accidental migrant. And it's something that when I used to talk about what I do, I used to think I was special. I used to think there was something unique about my story. And then as I did my interviews and did my research for my book, I realized that actually I am pretty typical for an overseas American which is that I went to college and graduate school in the United States at Harvard and at Georgetown. And then in October 1996, I went to Berlin on a DAD fellowship to do research for my PhD. And I was going to be in Berlin for 10 months. Well, that was 24 years ago. And since then, I extended my program. I got a job. I got married and got another job. And here I am. So the short answer is really it's at those sort of micro level changes in your life that lead you as a shift from a temporary migrant on a student visa to a, a permanent migrant. What relevance does your work have for the overseas American community? And you can plug your book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. One of the things about overseas Americans or American migrants is that there's not a lot of research done on us, I guess I'll say. Of other migrant communities in the world, we can think of Turks in Germany, perhaps, or Mexican migrants in the United States. An enormous amount of research has been done. And so what that means is we know more about them. And people tend to, when they do research on a migrant group, on anything really, you often tend to research the most visible groups. So people looking at overseas Americans might look at American women's clubs. They might look at American clubs. And often those aren't representative of the overseas American community. So the most visible Americans are not necessarily representative of the, the State Department estimates 9 million Americans living overseas. And so I think it's important that we do this research to break some of the stereotypes that there are about who overseas Americans are, why people have left the United States, and why they're remaining abroad. So one of the things that I really think is important about what I'm doing is that I am shedding more light um, on this community um, about which not a great deal is actually known. You don't especially like the term expat. Why is that? Well, that feeds into this exact question. And that, of course, is the title of my book, which is Migrants or Expatriates. And the underlying question that really had me start the research was, why is it that people from the global south are called migrants, but folks from the global north are more often called expats? And so that was one of the things that I really thought about when I looked at my book was, why are people moving? And it turned out that among the survey and the interviews that I did, the number one reason that people were moving was to be with a partner. And that's pretty parallel for most migrants in the world. I looked at integration. I looked at the celebration of national traditions. Right around this time of year is when people start looking for fried onions, mushroom soup, cranberries, sweet potatoes, pecans, and uh, trying to find uh, either caro syrup or make their own sugar syrup for pecan pie. Americans overseas celebrate Thanksgiving. And these are things that Americans have in common with migrant groups across the world. And the other thing that I really found in my book was that Americans, like other migrants, are seen as representatives of a group first and as individuals second. On the term expat is one that I don't particularly care for. 
for many reasons. One of them is that it is an expansion of a term. People on expat packages, that's a very specific taxation status for one thing. People who are on an expat package, that's typically they're working for an American corporation that they've been sent overseas for three to five years. They will have funding for their children to attend uh, the local English language or international school. They will have a specific tax package. And that's something that actually applies to a small minority of the Americans that are overseas. They might represent a majority in one particular area, for instance, that has a lot of American corporations, but that's not the majority of Americans overseas. And so that's something that I think is very important to note. Who's the American living overseas versus the perceived notion of the American overseas? And how do Americans living abroad get where they are? It depends who you're asking about who the American overseas is. If you're looking at Americans or US citizens who are in Mexico, for instance, in Central America, you might more often see what we call lifestyle migration. People who are perhaps on limited incomes and have found that their dollars stretch further in Mexico and Guatemala than they do in the United States. And so they are people who have moved for a better lifestyle and their dollars go further and they are able to live a better lifestyle in the sense of a more luxurious lifestyle. And that's something that is then different from uh, folks in continental Europe who are very much on a par with I live in Belgium, so other Belgians or other Germans or other French, and are holding jobs that are largely middle class and are really in those communities. And the perceived notion of the American overseas, often from the United States, is that people are unpatriotic. This is a holdover from the Vietnam years that they might be draft dodging, holdover from the 1960s that that might be evading taxes, and that they are champagne sipping, yacht living, quote unquote, expats. And that simply is not the reality. You've published three articles in 2020 on the overseas community. I'd like to ask you first about the article, Modeling American Migration Aspirations, How Capital, Race, and the National Identity Shape Americans' Ideas About Living Abroad in the International Migration Review. Could you give our listeners a brief overview of the article and what did you and your co-author Helen B. Morrow find? One of the things, and I think we'll get to this later, is just how difficult it is to get a really good quantitative idea of how many overseas Americans there are and what exact characteristics they have. So what Helen and I did was that we commissioned a representative survey in the United States about potential migration, about migration aspirations. And that way, what we got was a absolute representative sample of people who are thinking potentially of moving out of the United States. We found that about a third of our respondents thought about it. And this was back in 2014 that we did that survey. And we do have another publication that we're working on with a later survey, so there'll be more to come on that. And what we found was that right in line with other migrants, that people who have network connections of people who have already lived overseas, who are currently living overseas, that's a huge predictor if you're going to think about potentially moving overseas. People moved overseas for a number of reasons. Exploration was one of the really key reasons for people who were thinking about it. Now, what's interesting is that I found in my book and in other work that for people who are overseas, joining a partner, studying abroad, and working abroad are the three main reasons with exploration below that. But when you look at potential migration, it looks a little bit different. So that was one of the, our very interesting findings in that. In your two other articles this past year, the first one, Federal Structure and Party Politics as Simultaneous Opportunity and Constraint, Transnational Political Engagement of Overseas Americans, and the other, Political Parties Abroad, a New Arena for Party Politics, Highly Skilled Migration Between Settlement and Mobility, you focus more on the overseas American voter. 
What did you find in these articles and how does this resonate now in the wake of the recent election in the US? So I'm gonna take those two articles separately. So the first one, the federal structure and party politics as simultaneous opportunity and constraint in the United States, as I think all of your listeners are going to be very aware after this current presidential election, it is the 50 states that run the US elections. We do not have a centralized government. And so for instance, France, which is a very central country, they have overseas French voters can vote at polling locations. So when the French elections roll around, French voters in Washington, D.C. can go to the embassy. They can go to a polling station that is set up by the French government. French voters overseas, along with Italian voters and a number of others, actually vote for overseas senators. They have their own representatives in parliament. And that's something that's very, very different from the United States, because with the United States federal system, that's simply not possible. There is not a possibility for overseas Americans to be a single constituency in the presidential election. So the estimated 9 million or 5, 6.3 million, I'll get to that in a minute, overseas Americans vote in 50 states. And what we've seen is that since the 2000 election, exactly 20 years ago, when George Bush was elected president with 537 votes in Florida, with Florida being the one deciding state in that presidential election, that was where absentee ballots became, it became very clear that those played a role. And so after that 2000 election, we had two laws passed. It was the 2002 Help America Vote Act. And what that did was that required that overseas absentee civilian and military ballots be tabulated separately from domestic absentee ballots. And that was really significant. And then the 2009 Military and Overseas Voter Empowerment Act, or the MOVE Act, that then required that states send out ballots 45 days, at least 45 days before the election. Because Democrats abroad, the Overseas Vote Foundation, and FEAP, the Federal Voting Assistance Program, had all found that the main reason that ballots were not counted in elections was that they had not gotten back to their states in time. Now, again, following this recent election, I think all of your listeners will know that every state has a different deadline. Sometimes it is getting back to the state, the local election officer by election day. Sometimes it is postmarked by election day. Sometimes it is within three days after election day. But the main reason that military and civilian overseas voters were not able to get their ballots back was they didn't have enough time. So that 2009 act said that states must send out ballots at least 45 days before an election. And that was made possible by the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment says that states run the elections, but that the federal level has the possibility of mandating certain aspects of that in the interests of equality. And what they found was that there was not equality between the individual overseas American voter and the individual domestic American voter. And so that's what that law then uh, was remedying. And so that made something that was, that was a difference. Now, so that's a federal opportunity, but at the same time, it's a constraint. The federal system also constrains the overseas American voters from being seen as particular constituency. And then that's what my other article looked at, the political parties abroad. So if the 50 states run the presidential and senatorial and congressional elections, the political parties run the primary. So the Republican Party runs its primaries and the Democratic Party runs its primaries. Now that is typically delegated to the states, but what that also means is that if a party wishes to, it can designate another grouping of people as a 51st state. 
And that's what the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have both done with Guam, the Virgin Islands, America, Samoa, and Puerto Rico. But only the Democratic Party has done the same thing for overseas Americans. So the one time when overseas Americans can constitute a distinct constituency is in what's called the global presidential primary of Democrats abroad, when people who are voting in the Democratic primary can participate in Democrats abroad global primary. Democrats abroad are at the Democratic National Convention right after Delaware, and they have delegates just like every other state and Guam, Virgin Islands, and so forth uh, do as well. So in the 2016 election, Bernie Sanders' brother actually lives in England, and he was one of the delegates who cast a vote for his brother, Bernie Sanders. That is the one place where overseas Americans, if they're voting Democrat, do constitute a distinct constituency. Otherwise, overseas Americans are individual voters. And that's something that really distinguishes the United States from a lot of other countries that have immigrant populations. So with those up to 9 million potential overseas Americans voting in 50 different states, obviously their voices are spread across 50 different states. There are a lot of states that do have a lot of overseas voters, and they can make the difference in close elections. And so that's something that this year, perhaps more than in any year since 2000, I think everyone is aware of the potential impact of overseas votes, and that really every vote does count. Is there a difference between migration and immigration? You hear both terms used. Could you dive more into the difference? You know, that's an interesting one. And that really gets back to another myth almost that the United States has been known as a country of immigration for 200 years. And there was a myth of one-way migration, of one-way immigration, that people left Europe largely at that time, beginning, and moved to the United States. And that this was one-way immigration. So we talked about immigration that you emigrated from Poland or Germany or Italy, uh, and you immigrated to the United States. And I call this a myth because there has been some work done that shows that went through census records and showed that up to half of the Italian immigrants to New York in the late 19th century actually ended up going back to Italy. And so that's something that this myth of the one-way immigration from Europe to the New World probably was just that a myth, and that there was even then, even 100, 150, 200 years ago, a lot more back and forth migration than we were aware about. And so when we hear them talk about migration, that's really something that increasingly scholars have been talking about to capture temporary migration, circular migration, and onward migration. Sub-Saharan African migrants who leave a country in Sub-Saharan Africa move or migrate to North Africa and live there for a number of years before continuing on to Europe. Moving from one country to another is actually something that's really very typical. That's another stereotype that's sort of associated with overseas Americans of being globetrotting. This is something that doesn't apply, I think, to most Americans overseas, but it does apply to migrants from every country. The shift from immigration to migration is really recognizing that this myth of immigration from the old world to the new world is just that. It was a myth at the time and that now migration these days is a much more dynamic process involving sending countries, receiving countries, countries of, of transit, and that many people are actually serial migrants, if you want to use that terminology. So it's something that migration just sort of captures the richness and the complexity of the movement much more than a fairly static term of immigration does. Could you speak to how Americans living abroad meet or don't meet other Americans? 
that gets back again to why it is that people move. If people are moving within the context of an American company that places them overseas, then they're going to meet other people through their work. They might meet people through an American club, through an American women's club. For a lot of people, they have met a partner. Three quarters of my respondents in my book who were married were married to locals or to other foreigners, but not to other Americans. And so they're going to be very embedded in local communities and may not actually meet a lot of other Americans. I know when overseas Americans are doing voter outreach, trying to reach other American voters and let them know that they do have a right to vote in an election, they are using creative ways to try and find other Americans. And then that is certainly one of the challenges for researchers as well. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of times researchers do carry out their fieldwork with members of a community who are the most visible, but that is by no means the majority of a population. And so that's something that certainly overseas Americans will meet up through American women's clubs, American clubs, uh, Democrats abroad, Republicans overseas, but that's not capturing most of them by long shot. How well does Congress know the typical overseas American? Why doesn't the U.S. have a good relationship with their expats compared to other countries? So, I mean, how well does Congress know the typical overseas American? Not well at all. I think that Congress's feelings about overseas Americans are largely shaped by the past. So the idea that if we are a country of immigration, why would anybody leave the United States? And that's something that a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their minds around. And that's where this concept that I've called the accidental migrant really comes in. A lot of people did not actually mean to leave the United States permanently. I certainly didn't. And I still wouldn't say I'm permanently gone, but uh, I did leave 26 years ago, it was 24 years ago. And so that's something that I think there is a clash of understandings about why it is that people leave the United States. Um, and people have often left for a short term that became longer term more permanent. And I think that's something that is not part of the imagination. One of my other articles looks at this idea that the overseas American of a overseas community is simply not part of the national imagination of the United States, that the United States remains a very territorially based country and one which is an immigration country at its heart, that people come to the United States. And when we look at other countries which have good, strong relationships with the diasporic communities, it's typically because they think that overseas community can give something back to the country in some way. And there's simply not that recognition in Washington that an overseas American population can give something back to the United States. Now, I, for one, happen to think that's a little short-sighted. I think there is a lot that an overseas American community could support Washington in. I think a lot of that is a lot of overseas Americans view themselves as unofficial ambassadors. They explain American foreign policy. They explain some of the quirks of American domestic politics. And they are representatives of the United States. And that's something that a lot of people I've interviewed, I won't say resentful, but they're certainly aware that their efforts in this part are not strongly appreciated. And that's something that I think we could do with a change toward understanding and appreciating the potential of overseas Americans more strongly than is currently the, the situation. Many researchers talk about those living abroad as being a diaspora. Is this a correct way to categorize American expats or any expatriate community? The term diaspora is one that, well, it actually, when I lecture on it, I point out that it first comes up in the Bible. It means to disperse widely. Originally, it referred to the Jewish diaspora. And in terms of academic definitions, we talk about a population that is spread across many countries. Typically, there's an idealized vision 
of the home country coupled with a wish to return home at some point. And that's something that stretches over generations. In about the past 15 years or so, the term diaspora has started being used more instrumentally by countries who are building on the idea that a diaspora is not an emigrant community, but a diaspora is a community that has connections to a home country. From a home country's perspective, if we call this population a diaspora, then they have a connection to us. So maybe they will send remittances or know-how back home. And so we can strengthen that community. We can strengthen that connection. We might extend the vote. There's been a huge extension of the vote over the last 20 years to overseas communities around the world. And in return, we're hoping for that diasporic community to give something back. With the Americans, that's something that I do think this accidental migrant really encapsulates the community more so than diaspora. But at the same time, I've said that there are diasporic elements in it. I, I realize that sort of splitting hairs. But there was one particular community that when I did my interviews, oh, it was a while ago now in 2011, one of the groups that I came across was the Love Exiles. These were gay and lesbian Americans who had foreign partners. Under the laws at the time, it wasn't until 2015 that same-sex marriage was recognized on the federal level, could they sponsor a same-sex foreign partner for a spousal visa for a green card? Straight couples have always been able to, or for a very, very long time, been able to sponsor a foreign partner for a green card in the United States. But same-sex couples were only able to do that from 2015. So there's this population abroad call themselves the love exiles because they had had to leave the United States in order to be able to found a family, which of course is a fundamental human right. And so they in particular, I would say, did form a diaspora in the sense that they felt that they had fled the United States. But overall, this concept of a diaspora is one that there's a great deal of research on of diaspora versus transnational community. And that's something that really talks about the linkages and an idealized vision of a home country, but again, has been used more instrumentally by countries in recent years. How possible is it to get a good sense of who makes up the American overseas community? That's something that I think the more research we do, and I am gratified to see that other researchers are also now working on the overseas American community or communities, really. And that's something that the more research we do, the better idea that we will have about who overseas Americans are. How do Americans abroad get counted and what are the issues with it? Ha, this is exactly the problem, that in order to do survey research, in order to get a representative sample, in order to be able to do really good quantitative work, we need to know a population. So if you have 100 people, you know the characteristics of that 100 people population. You can sample, you can work with 10 or 20 people in order to get a good idea of what all 100 of them look like, what they do, what they think. But when you do not know what that base population is, you simply don't have a way of doing a representative sample. And so that's the thing, is that the U.S. State Department estimates that there are 9 million overseas Americans. The FBIP, the Federal Voting Assistance Program in the Department of Defense, estimates that there are 6.3 million in our overseas FBAP estimates that there are 4.8 million overseas civilians and 1.3 million overseas military. So you have a pretty wide range of estimates of how many overseas Americans there are. The State Department estimates 9 million overseas Americans, and they calculate that on the basis of consular reports of birth abroad, people who register at the embassy, and passports that are issued. Now, 
each one of those counts is not going to be complete. Passports for adults are good for 10 years. Uh, so if you have had a passport issued just before you leave the United States, you can live overseas for nine years before you have to renew. The State Department encourages Americans to register with the local embassy. And that's something that people will do more often in times of crisis, such as COVID, but they will also do more often in more dangerous locations. For instance, in Afghanistan, you're going to have a higher rate of local Americans registering with the embassy than you would in Paris, London, or Brussels. And so that's something that we don't have good numbers. In continental Europe, everyone needs to register. But if people are dual citizens, and many overseas Americans are, then they're going to be registered under their European passport and not under their American passport. And so that's something that there are so many levels of undercounting and overcounting possible, that you can have a family where individuals each have one, two, or three passports, depending on the parents, depending on who is naturalized. And so it's very difficult to get an accurate count based on the ways that people are counted and each one of them falls short. And what about the hidden American overseas, that elusive American overseas community? Do you have any tips on discovering where they are? So there is an elusive overseas American community. I think with social media, that's something that has become a lot easier for overseas Americans to be in touch with each other. You asked me earlier about how people are in touch with each other, and I mentioned a number of different clubs. Increasingly, it's also Facebook groups or Twitter hashtags. And that's something that if somebody is the only American in their rural village in a country anywhere in the world, suddenly they can be in touch with Americans around the world. You will see that in various Facebook groups, Twitter hashtags, Twitter conversations, and so forth, that people mention where they live and they are in touch with each other. And so that's something that I think social media is a good way to get in touch with a lot of people. But again, this idea that the number one reason that my research found that people have moved overseas is to be with a partner, I think that's probably replicated more broadly. And there are a lot of Americans who are thoroughly embedded in local communities and are living their lives. They have jobs, they have families, and they're not engaging with an overseas or domestic American community because their lives are so thoroughly embedded in the communities that they're in. Do you have any suggestions on how the U.S. can reach out to the American overseas community? How can Americans abroad be better represented in Congress? This is the thing, is that the way our Constitution structures political representation, overseas Americans are not going to have a representative in Congress. Shy of a constitutional amendment and the political will to expand representation for overseas Americans, who, as we've talked about, are, I think, largely misunderstood, that's not going to happen. So I know Representative Carolyn Maloney of New York has been working on this. There is an Americans Abroad Caucus in the House. There is some talk of, and there has been for some time, but so far it has not gained a great deal of traction, but really trying to get representation through an advisory group. And I think that's something that really would be positive. I do think that overseas Americans have enormous potential as bridge builders. And again, as really building on that unofficial overseas American ambassador. And that's something that I think they are greatly underutilized. I think there's a great deal of potential there. And whether that's something that comes out of Washington or is initiated from overseas, I think there's a great deal of potential there. Can you speak a bit about the State Department's call for Americans to return, quote unquote, home now when COVID hit in early 2020? 
I understand you carried out a survey asking people why they did or did not return to the U.S. Yeah, I did. That was something that was brought to my attention by other overseas Americans was a Facebook and Twitter post from the State Department on the 4th of April, which did indeed, in great capital letters, say overseas Americans return home now. It really showed the lack of understanding of the diversity of the overseas American community. There certainly were a number of uh, students on study abroad, people who were traveling, people who were in the Peace Corps, people who were in a number of fairly precarious situations who did want to return home. They had been overseas temporarily and going back to the United States was the safest place they wanted to go. But for a number of overseas Americans, and I would venture to say the majority of Americans outside of the United States, overseas is home. And what was interesting in the survey I carried out, but have not yet written up for a publication, the number one reason people were not going back to the United States was they did not have health care in the United States. They have health care where they live, but they did not have health care in the United States. And in the survey, people responded and said, why would I go back to the United States in the middle of a pandemic without health care? And that's something that really came across very, very clearly, both the State Department's lack of understanding of the diversity of Americans overseas and the fact that the United States does not have a healthcare system that extends to all U.S. citizens. Do you think groups like ACA, Democrats Abroad, and Republicans Overseas are providing the services needed for the expat community, or are there other areas where these organizations can do better while still meeting the goals of their mission? Democrats Abroad and Republicans Overseas both register voters. That is their primary goal, and they do a number of events and fundraising in order to support that goal. And services for the well, expat or overseas American community, I mean, again, it's interesting. That's something that I think really varies quite widely. You know, what is it that overseas Americans are looking for? Some are, again, I think really just living their lives overseas. Others are concerned about taxation. Others might be doing college applications for their kids to go to college in the United States. Others might be concerned about anti-Americanism where they live. And that's something that I think a lot of people are going to have very, very different approaches. And that's something that we're not really going to be able to get a good handle on until we have a better sense of the really, again, I keep saying this idea of this richness and diversity of an overseas American community. What projects do you have on the horizon? As I mentioned, we've got a survey that we carried out last year on migration potential, five years after our previous survey, and we're writing that up. So maybe I'll be back to talk to you about that when we have that analyzed and ready to go. And one of the other things that I am looking at is this idea of a further problematizing this idea of migrants versus expatriates. My book was really an initial look at that, and that's something that I want to further see what distinguishes overseas Americans from other migrants. Why are overseas Americans different or similar? And then, and really playing further with this idea of the Americans as unofficial ambassadors and trying to work on some of that potential and further develop that. Are there any personal experiences you can share as being an American overseas yourself, managing a family and career, raising bilingual and bicultural kids? So I have lived overseas at this point for 24 years. I live in Brussels and Brussels is an international city. And it's something that speaking two or three languages is normal here. And so Brussels is really a special place. It's a place that I think in a bicultural household, it's a good place to be at home. 
And certainly being in a bicultural household, you follow the news in a couple different places and it can be hard to not be in one place or the other. But at the same time, you also get the benefit of being linked to more than one place. It's certainly not a dull life, that's for sure. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? The United States is an absolutely fascinating country. Built as a country for immigrants, it's still not entirely comfortable with this idea of having an immigrant community. And that's something that this immigrant community celebrates Thanksgiving, celebrates Halloween, votes in U.S. elections, and may yet be able to be seen to have had an influence on the 2020 presidential election. This is a unique relationship, and I am so excited to be doing research on it, to be part of it, and I think there's a lot more to do. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us. 